This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Do we get to do that deep voices thing that y'all did on the last episode? No, I don't know what that was all about. <laughs> that was good. We should do that. We should do that for every episode. It, it's weird. I recorded the first bit. You know, I tested it to make sure that, you know, levels were good. I listened to it on playback. Everything sounded fine. I recorded again. And somehow that section of audio gets completely messed up. Just the first bit? Just the first bit. And that was all one continuous recording. Hmm. Um, and it just fixed itself. Well, it sounded good. You all sounded manly. It sounded like uh, Mr. X. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, like sitting in shadow. Yeah. Talking about the evidence of ancient aliens that's being kept down by the government. Right, right. Hey everybody, this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Build Phase. So what's up? It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, it has. Keith did an an admirable job. Oh, he did a great he did a great job. Yeah, those those were those were great programs. It was it was interesting, you know, getting to look at someone IRL while while doing a podcast. Yeah. It's harder to get away with being distracted by other things when that person is sitting right across from you. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) right right so what have you been up to this week doing that design sprint thing design sprint for the first couple of days and then um still working on the weather app Mm -hmm. all all week i've been doing a custom pull to refresh animation nice and it's completely turned my brain into a knot (laughs) because of math and stuff because of math and i'm also trying to make it all chain off of um like a rack observe of the scroll view content offset. Mm. And then I'm like splitting that signal and then using it for other things and being like, yeah, we pulled this far. And then like this signal over here says like, yeah, we crossed the refresh threshold. And this one says, yeah, okay, we crossed the refresh threshold and we let go. Mm -hmm. And because this specific animation I want has a lot of moving pieces where I'd even have to modify something flexible like SS pull to refresh to, to do the stuff that I want. So I figured I'd just write my own. (laughs) Hasn't been fun. I'm, I'm sure, you know, if I went back and just like implemented this with KVO just in an imperative way, I could knock it out mm-hmm. a lot faster. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm using this as an experiment to think reactively. Yeah. I found that everything takes me a day longer than it would with imperative mm-hmm. code. Mm-hmm. But at the end, I like it a lot more. Mm-hmm. So it's worth the investment. But yeah. Like I find myself with reactive cocoa a lot, like where I get hung up at like four thirty and my brain hurts and I just have to stop yeah. and just come back to it the next day. Yeah. I think for me, like I don't mind like assuming you like it more. So there's there's a trade off there, right? If it's taking you longer. I heard you said on the last one that you didn't think you would pull reactive cocoa into a client project, which kind of surprised me. But like that that trade off of of it taking a little bit longer to do right now right i i think eventually like you'd end up being as effective right don't you think like mm-hmm. it's more it's almost more unlearning than learning right right but like the trade off between that time seems like it makes sense when you take you know you spend a little more time working on it but you're happier working on it you're happier maintaining it it's easier to maintain, you know, once you know this stuff. 
I think that's where that investment pay, ends up paying off. Yeah, for sure. And I'm really enjoying it. And you know, this has been investment time, which mm-hmm. classically is supposed to be about learning myself and yeah. learning. Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't bother me that it's taking so long to do it. Right. But you know, like you said, once you understand this stuff, it's good. That's exactly the reason why I wouldn't do it on a client project. Because it's a huge dependency to just offload onto someone that may have no experience with it. You know, at least we could make the assumption that, okay, you understand the frameworks and Objective C, but mm-hmm. just assuming that someone's going to come along and be able to read my reactive code without a huge productivity dip is not reasonable. Right. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently because of the other functional stuff. And I think Reactive Cocoa is in the same boat as um, Argo. Or, you know, us using functional operators in Swift. You know what I mean? Where it's like, I like writing that, and that's the way I want to write stuff. And that's actually the way I'm probably the most effective and the most productive is doing that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it's a big it's a big dependency to not for us necessarily, but it's a dependency that we're pushing off on our clients, sort of. And I'm not sure where to draw that line, really. Like, because I've kind of taken an opposite stance from what you're talking about, where I'm encouraging Tony to write the code that he wants to write. You know, he's on a client project right now, and it's very functional internally. Like, we're using all the operators. We're using Argo. We're using a lot of kind of functional concepts, results, you know, that kind of stuff. And I do think that it's going to – I don't think it's going to be a problem, but it's something that might show itself down the line. You know, we roll off this cl- project and now the client hires someone else. Are they going to be able to understand what's going on or yes. not? And how do you how do you handle – how do you handle that? How do you ha- – you know, so the two arguments here are really like write it or don't write it. You know what I mean? But like the argument for writing it is that like I honestly think that it's – the best way to do it like i really do i think that this generates the best code and i think that it generates the cleanest code and i think it generates the most maintainable code you know mm-hmm. same thing with reactive cocoa i'm not even just talking about the functional stuff i'm talking about reactive cocoa functional concepts swift I'm talking about all these decisions that you make and the more we write it the better we get at writing it the more we write it the better programmers we become. We're pushing our careers forward. We're pushing the frameworks that we're using forward. The flip side of that would be to not use these concepts, not use reactive cocoa, not use functional concepts, not use operators, or even, you know, writing Swift in that kind of more machine translation style than, than using Swift as it is now. And the, the benefits there would be that everybody would understand it. You have a much lower barrier to entry. But the language stagnates, the frameworks stagnate, we stagnate. So, so there's got to be some kind of middle ground there. Yeah, that, certainly. It's it's finding what's what is the metric around the code that we orient ourselves by. So, to borrow a term from our growth team, what's the north star metric for code that we feel comfortable passing off to a client? Mm-hmm. And I think that should just be clarity. So. You know, code for the lowest common denominator as long as it's still clear. And then if if you find yourself, you know, really struggling to make something expressive and clear without pulling in a framework, then, you know, you can make the argument that, yes, pulling this in has some more overhead and learning it, but the benefit to the code far outweighs 
that impediment of having to learn how to use this thing. So we, we as consultants handing off code, I think like the most important thing we should ship is clear code. Yeah, I agree. More than anything else. That should, that should guide our decisions. That's what I'm saying. I'd be more specific about it. I'd say that not just clear code, but like maintainable code, clean code. You know what I mean? Like we should be handing off kind of the best code we can possibly hand off to clients. That's kind of what I see as my job. So question for you. You're saying that you wouldn't use Reactive Cocoa on a project today, right? You start a project on Monday. You're not going to pull Reactive Cocoa in even though you like it, right? Like what would have to happen for you to actually pull in Reactive Cocoa on a project? Because the learning barrier I don't think is ever going to go away. So is it just a matter of you'd have to hit some level of productivity in Reactive Cocoa? Or like what other than that, what else are you waiting for? And what's the alternative? Because the alternative the alternative to me seems like you just don't use Reactive Cocoa and you're just sitting there <laughs> writing stuff knowing that there's a better way to write it, but writing it the worst way anyway. Yeah, in service of the point I just made, if I was writing a bunch of imperative code that felt just so wrong and I felt that the imperative code I'm writing is less clear than its reactive variant, then I would pull it in and maybe just use it in that one place because I think that it, it helps like the clarity of the code mm-hmm. to not be concerned with the imperative details of how you're moving things around, but just simply what is happening. I do think that, well, it's like any other language, right, or language feature, you can read Reactive Cocoa a lot faster than you can write it. Sure. So in the code we hand off, it may not be necessary to modify it if it's this really complicated thing. And, you know, as part of our normal handoff process, I'd probably instruct a dev to be like, hey, yeah, this is in Reactive Cocoa over here, but that's because it's the alternative is heinous. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a kind of like a, a rundown of what's really happening. Yeah. I'd like to see Reactive Cocoa like, explained to folks in terms of like, unix philosophy like every operator is almost like its own little program unto itself and you just keep that's exactly how i picture it you know you have a big funnel mm-hmm. and reactive coco is just a funnel it's mm-hmm. just like filtering and transforming values until you get to something on the other end right right it's one big pipe right so it's a, it's a trade-off that i'd have to like weigh very very carefully i just to decide whether to pull it in yeah this might be shiny new toy syndrome or you know when your only tool is a hammer everything looks like a nail whatever but like don't you think if you try this right if you try going like taking a step back and not using reactive cocoa i can't help but feel like you're gonna it's it's gonna be like me trying to step which i said before i'm not entirely sure how to step back from the precipice so to speak with all the functional stuff i'm doing because i'm immediately going to hit things that i dislike and that I want these functional operations for and that I'm going to want to, you know what I mean? Like, like I just, I, I question whether or not that point of where it, the truly imperative code starts really to look ugly to you. I, I can't help but wonder if that's earlier than you think it is. I, I think it, it might've already begun. My point, like if you, if we like, if we like MVVM as an architecture, and we did MVVM on that last project together, and it worked pretty good. But now, like watching the MVVM that y'all are doing with Reactive Cocoa, it's like, oh, this just makes so much more sense. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot when I get hung up on Reactive Cocoa, and I think about just going back and spiking it out to see how far I get 
And then all of a sudden I'm adding tons of um, private properties to my class right. to track little bits of state. Right. And and now the way that looks to me is like writing a code is you're building or you're you're building a, a building, a skyscraper. And the imperative version, you know, you set up all this scaffolding so that you can continue to build upwards. And then when you're done, that scaffolding is actually part of the structure and you can no longer tear it down. Like right. that is that <laughs> the scaffolding is state to me. Right. Like you had to set right. this up to help you write it. But right. now it's so ingrained <laughs> in how this thing works that you can't take the scaffolding down without the building coming down. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And so that just seems super gross. Right. So how do you how I mean we this is all hypothetical. But like if you're saying how how do you how are you thinking if you're thinking right now that you wouldn't pull reactive cocoa in to solve that problem like what's you're all you know what i mean you you, you get what i'm asking like you, you're gonna hit that immediately the first time because because we've kind of not settled but we're we're moving more and more towards this mvvm architecture because of all the other benefits it has and if the second you touch mvvm it gets uglier trying to work around the absence of reactive cocoa it's like your architecture at some level does depend on reactive cocoa. The architecture in depends on heavy use of observation. Right. 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 right so right, actually right, I right. could, you know, I could actually see now cuz either way I'm going to either write some KVO wrapper, which I probably won't do it again because KVO controller is so good. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to pull in That's reactive Facebook's. cocoa. You're talking yeah. about Facebook's. And th- and that's what we used on the last project. Yeah, right. I know you know that. That was yeah. for the benefit of the listeners. <laughs> but, you know, you get that for free with Reactive Cocoa. And you don't necessarily have to use all the signals. Like, you could just pull in Reactive Cocoa and just use Rack Observe on things. Mm-hmm. Like, Rack Observe and the Rack Macro mm-hmm. to, like, wrap up a property and bind it to a signal that's created by observing some other property. I mean, that might be a good middle ground to start. You know, pull it in and just use it to wrap around KDO. And, like maybe notifications and stuff like would you would you try to like we said it this was like three weeks ago but we talked about uh you said that one of the great things about reactive cocoa is it gives you a unified api for like delegation patterns callbacks uh notifications and kvo mm-hmm. and target action and target action Right. So would that be where you kind of isolate stuff? You say like, okay, we're anytime we need to do a truly reactive thing, this thing happens. So this other thing needs to happen. Would you just kind of try to silo reactive cocoa to that and then try to keep everything else imperative? Yeah. I think that, I think that's reasonable because then anyone else that takes it on can pretty clearly see what's happening in that case. It's very much just this normally was happening, you know, via a protocol or something, but you can still see like which way the data flows and it's mm-hmm. straightforward because you're not running it through like that series of pipes and filters and maps and mm-hmm. all that stuff that mm-hmm. I mentioned. But it would be easy enough to refactor later to sort of, you know, take that very long imperative gap and shorten that using just a few, you know, reactive cocoa operators. Mm-hmm. So I might do that, you know, and like yeah. leave those refactors there as something that's possible later and easy to do, but then only really use the, you know, the reactive variant when I think it actually makes the code. Like that, like that timer stuff that we were talking about a few weeks ago with the, yeah, that absolutely would have been a huge mess of of monitoring. You know, I think I would have needed two properties of which either one or both could be nil or not. 
Right. And you're doing like all kinds of checking for each one of those cases to decide what to display. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that's exactly the kind of scaffolding I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would use it in little isolated cases like that. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out where my line, one, should I fall back from using, I think really operators are the, the main thing. Like I don't mind the functions themselves, map, apply, flat map. My concern is using operators and people looking at a thing and just being like, holy crap. You know, I have no idea what this means. Like, um, you know, one of our coworkers in New York is doing a Swift project and I've been, you know, she's, she's doing it in order to like learn Swift. She's a web dev. So she's learning Swift and trying to get used to it. And so she already brought in Argo, which brought in runes. So I'm immediately like, Get ready for some functional stuff in your pull request because that's just, you know, not not saying, like, you have to do this. Not saying that this is the way we should do this. Just saying, like, like one of the things I want to do is try to be – if especially – well, I'm almost exclusively in Swift. But I, I want to be – I want to say, like, just so you know, take this or leave it, but just so you know, you could write this functionally, you know, with map, apply, flat map. You could write it like this, you know? And so I've been doing that, and there were, are there are places where it's like five lines that get compacted down into one, you know? And, like, yes, on the surface, it's a little harder. Like, you can read the five lines maybe easier when you don't really understand the concepts. But if you understand, like, this in this case, it was – there was a function that took a non-optional and an optional value. It was doing JSON parsing is what it was doing. So, so you got this JSON value that was an optional, right? And then she was checking to see if it was nil. So she was unwrapping it with if let. If it existed, then she was passing it to the JSON value.parse function that comes from Argo, which gave back a JSON value, and then passing that over into... Uh, her decode function, which returned an optional object. But then if that unwrapping, that initial unwrapping failed, then she had to return nil outside of that block, right? Outside of the conditional. And so all of a sudden you end up with two return statements, which isn't horrible. Like they, you know, it was a small function. They weren't super far apart. It's not the worst thing in the world. But if you just live in this world of optional, then you don't ever have to have two return statements in this case. So what, what I, what I suggested that she do was JSON value dot parse map that optional value and then flat map the return of that into the decode. It's impossible to see. Like I, 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 I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to understand. Like this is bad radio <laughs> describing operators and <laughs> whatever. But the point was that like, it's it's this kind of dense little function that replaced multiple return values and replaced a conditional and replaced kind of having to know whether or not this thing exists or not or even caring about whether or not this thing exists or not. I think that that little line of code is complex enough. I actually, you know, what I'll do is I'll write a I'll write a gist 
that has like kind of before and after of this so that people can see that and I'll put it in the show notes. But I think that that little function is dense enough that it's going to be, it's a little daunting to see. You know what I mean? You have like three sets of words with parens and then two operators. It's kind of like, well, that's weird, right? But I honestly think it's much nicer than the alternative, which is multiple return values and a conditional. Yeah, uh, no, I, I agree. What what is it about writing in Swift that makes multiple returns feel so wrong? Because I love them in Objective C, but for some reason, when I'm writing Swift and I write an early return, it feels just wrong. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but every time I see them, I'm kind of like, ugh. So to me, I think part of that is that most of the time, what's happening is you'll have early returns or multiple returns because of these optional values. So you get into this iflet. You get into this, whether it's an iflet tree, you know, nested iflets or whatever. You get into this place where you're unwrapping and you have to do something and you do the thing that you want to do. It, it sucks because we talk a lot about, you know, happy path and whatever. You know what I mean? Well, if lets mean that you can't have a happy path, right? If the happy, if you, if you want to code so that the happy path is all the way, you know, justified far, as far left as it can be, the second you have optionals, that's not the case. What yeah. happens is you end up, it's going to be the furthest right thing. That's going to be the thing that you actually want to do because you have to unwrap, 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 unwrap. unwrap. Mm-hmm. So it's the absence of if not let. Right. <laughs> that right. makes those feel weird. Right. But it would it, that would be weird too. You need to do if not let then have it be unwrapped in the outer scope. It's like that doesn't you know it's right. very weird. Anyway, but but yeah, I think that most of the times when I've seen early returns in Swift has been to deal with that kind of a thing, to deal with optional values that we have to unwrap this thing and then do something with it. But if we couldn't do that thing with it, then we have to return nil. You know, mm-hmm. and that is absolute to me. That is absolutely a smell because the second you're return explicitly returning nil or none or anything from a something that's already dealing with optional inside of it, it's like just use – if you just used map, apply, flat map, you, you literally wouldn't have to care. Mm-hmm. You know, It's the strength of those, those functions for me. So I saw this come up in our Slack and this is sort of related. And this isn't a dig or anything. This is no. a legitimate concern. And yes. I think in most cases, it's not a concern. Um, how do other functional languages let you get a hook into you know this chain of functions that handles the exceptional case without something being nil in the chain just end up having that being swallowed? I'm not sure what you mean. So I didn't see that. Was this when I was on vacation in Slack? I thought this actually happened yesterday. Oh. Um, I missed it. You know, but you have some optional value that, you know, and then map and then flat map and say like one oh, of those steps fails. That, that it's a no op. Is that what right. you're saying? So yeah, you can check the so, final result, mm-hmm. but what if you want to sort of get in the middle there and be like, oh, this thing failed. I, I'd like to show this to the user in some way. Yeah. So the the example, I think the easy example is like IB outlets, right? IB outlets. I have actually stuff to say about this. But I'm, I don't know. We're, we'll see how we do with time. But like an IB outlet has to be an optional value of some kind because you're not it, you're not setting it at instantiation, right? It's so it's either going to be you're either going to use an implicitly unwrapped optional for the IB outlet or you're going to use an ex, explicit 
optional for the property. Mm-hmm. And then what you end up doing is like, you know, if you, well, let's say you use an actual optional. And so everywhere you're using the question mark dot syntax, the conditional chaining stuff. So you're saying like, if there's a label, set its text to this. If there's a button, set its background to this, you know? But the problem is that all of those become no ops if you didn't set those buttons. Or a big one is like, say you have to set up, for whatever reason, you have to set up that target action pattern in code, right? So I set the buttons target action to do something, right? But I didn't set that button in interface builder. This is actually a problem that exists in Objective-C already. So the button's nil, so everything you're messaging to the button doesn't happen. And so you tap the button, and it just sits there, right? If you didn't hook up the button to the, the IB outlet from right. the view to the code, you know, this happened, this happens in Objective-C because nil will just swallow everything. Same thing would happen in, in Swift if you're using, like, optional chaining or even map or any of these things. Mm-hmm. I was actually talking to Joe about this yesterday, about this is a place where I run up against trying to figure out how to handle type safety and having a safe language versus unexpected behavior or wrong behavior. There's there's like no good answer for that to me. Because the two so in Swift, the two things you would do in this kind of a case where you have something that really, really should be there and something that you should do with that thing that should be there. But because of the way the system is set up, we have to declare it as optional. And so it might not be there. Mm-hmm. The two things you could do are nothing or crash in Swift. You could use an implicitly unwrapped optional and not use optional chaining and it will crash when you message it. Or you can use a normal wrapped optional and it will just, and use conditional chaining or force unwrapping and it will do nothing. So it seems like the ideal solution though is that Xcode should be validating outlets at compile time. That is exactly what I was getting to. Like I was taught thinking about talking about because that's what yesterday <laughs> Joe mentioned something like that and I immediately got super angry. I was like, wait a minute, you're right. Why doesn't it do that? Like why do we have to declare IB outlets as optional at all? We should be able to declare them as not optional and then it compiles these things. It should be able to say like, hey, you never – it knows – Xcode knows if you hook something up to it. It's got that little dot in the in the gutter that is filled in. If You know what I mean? It's yep. doing this already. Yep. Just <laughs> – you know what I mean? Like yep. you're already doing this. You have deeper hooks in the system than I can. Just – Ensure it compiled. That would be amazing. Can you imagine how amazing that would be if you just have buttons and you're just like, I don't have to worry about forgetting and ending up in these no ops situations, you know? And there already are cases where you can have things configured in Interface Builder that will throw warnings and errors at compile time. Right. Uh, a great example of this is the restoration identifier. If you set, well, two views to have identical restoration identifiers, it won't even build. It enforces uniqueness of restoration identifiers at compile time. If you have misplaced views in auto layout, those show up as warnings at compile time. So we obviously have the ability to parse, you know, these zip files and storyboard files to like look for things that are not connected correctly. Right. And further, 
wouldn't the new let semantics in 1.2 let you basically lazily load those things out of the nib so they would actually be non-optional constants? So uh, they would still have to be set at initialization. Be, so the so the new let semantics, the new let semantics in Swift 1.2. If you if you don't if you don't know, so they you know we didn't talk about it, but they re- they just released Swift 1.2 into the first beta, and one of the things that they changed is. Before let everything Swift 1.0 and 1.1, you declare a, a let, so you declare a constant, and you have to instantiate it when you declare the constant, and then you can't ever re-instantiate. That this is the old way. The, oh, okay. old, the old way used to be you had to do let foo equal foo initialized. You know what I mean? Something like that. You you had to. You can ever have an empty foo. The new semantics say that you can declare a let and you can only write to it once. That's what the new semantic is. So you say let foo and then you give it a type, but then you can only ever write to it once. You can only only ever assign to that constant once. And then at compile time, it will check to make sure that it has a value before you use it. So if you're inside the same scope, and you never you never assign to foo, and later on you try using foo, it will say you haven't initialized this constant yet, right? So that's the new semantic. The thing it also lets you do it, oh, and they changed mutability stuff inside initializers. So in pre Swift one point two, inside initializers, constants weren't constants. You could just mutate them all you wanted. Oh, uh, they just had to be constant by the time you returned. <laughs> yes, which I is see. really kind of horrible. Like when you really think about it, it's like, that's really confusing. Why do you have this special? So they just basically removed that. Let mm-hmm. is just standardized now. So you have the same thing where you can declare let as a property and the only, it's, it's a standardized semantic now. You can declare a let at any time. You just have to be able to ensure at compile time that it's been instantiated before you use it, right? Right. Yes. So the problem is you can't necessarily do something like lazy loading. Like the problem that they would get into is that you need to be able to ensure at compile time. Like since the compiler can't ensure order of operations – inside like you can't have one function that sets the value of that constant and another function that reads the value of that constant that won't that won't compile because it can't guarantee that the setter will happen before the getter oh right i see the the compiler can't it it, that's that's temporal coupling and the compiler can't make any assumptions about time you know in timing so that's where you'd run into this problem but you have in it with coder set up, right? And if it's unpacking these things and assigning them, you could use constants. The in theory, in an ideal world, we could use constants, IB outlet constants, non-optionals that get set at initialization at the time of initialization, because it unpacks those things and sets them inside the initializer. And then once it's been initialized, they will be there. I failed to see how in the specific case of working within UIKit and on archiving things from the nib that they can't infer that these things will be set before you have the very first opportunity to touch them from your class. They they could because they could write that into init with coder. Right. 
but it would have to be a part of init with coder. And I don't, I, I don't know anything about this framework, right? That's the, but that's the only way it would work. The only way it would work is, is to have that set up in, in it with coder. So sort of speaking theoretically here, would it not be possible for them to make a specific case for such constants that are outlets where the very first time you attempt to access them, it unarchives that thing from the nib? So yes, it is only assigned once, but it just happens lazily behind the scenes. Like like really that that constant to an outlet ends up being some proxy constant under the hood. It doesn't matter. Um, that knows how to load itself from this reference nib object. Right. As soon as you hit it. That you're saying that the IB outlet annotation would have much more magic behind it. I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. Yeah. But yeah. Like I, I don't know enough about any of this stuff at the tooling level to know why that wouldn't work. I would be concerned with adding magic to the IB outlet thing, but they they already removed magic from it, right? IB outlet in the early beta days used to also uh, imply weak. So anything that was an IB outlet was also weak, and they removed that, that mm-hmm. implicit association with weak because it was just – it was too much going on. How far back was that? Are we talking like – It was in – it was in – it was pre-1.0. It was somewhere in the betas, beta – three or four or something like that. Oh, made. we're talking specifically with Swift. Yes. Oh, I yes. see. I see. Okay. I'm talking yeah. about the Swift version of the IB outlet annotation. I get it. That, I mean, the, the thing that I just described is not a, it would not have to be a Swift change, right? It, it, it's a, it's a tool change. It's an Xcode change. The nib loading system. I think all of this can be solved by tooling. Yes. I think that, I think that it could be solved by tooling and it should be solved by tooling. I think the fact that we have to declare IB outlets as optional is a bug, really. I, I've been thinking this whole time that I need to file a radar on this, but like, um, and if I remember after this call, I will, but you know, it, it really is like it's, it's, it's us having to work around limitations in the actual tooling of the system that we work in, you know, how that happens doesn't really matter. The fact is it should happen. Getting, getting back to, uh, not to, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say on that? You sound, look like you're about to. Oh, no, I was just going to say that I'm, I'm excited to see what the Xcode team has been up to apart from the Swift team in the past year. Yeah, me too. I did want to jump back and answer or try to answer. I think your original question I remember where this came up. It, this so the the whole optional no op thing. It came up because someone was another one of our colleagues was building. They're building a Mac app in Swift, and they had like a URL, and it was URL NS URL with string, and it's just some base URL that they need. It's going to be a constant that they're always using, and and so NS URL URL with string. The Swift version of that is a failable initializer. So it can return nil. So he, the question was like, the question that he was asking is like, what do I do with this? Like, because he, he pasted this snippet and had a bang at the end. And I was like, well, don't do that. So like, that's not safe. You don't want to do that. You know, you don't, you never want to force unwrap. He's like, well, how do I do this? So I was like, use map or if let to, you know, conditionally unwrap. It's like, but, or, you know, optional chain or something. He was like, but what if, you know, but then you start thinking about it and it's like, if this is just some base URL that's used everywhere in your system, 
that means that your app will just like not work. One, you'll have to use map everywhere or if let everywhere. And that sucks. That's a whole lot of boilerplate code that you have to deal with when you shouldn't have to deal with it. And then on top of that, it's like, it means that your entire app becomes a no op because this failed, you know, it failed to create the right URL. And so I think like, I, 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 I kind of conceded that I think force unwrapping is the right option there. And this is kind of what I was talking about with Joe last night, which is that like, if your app basically stops working, then that already is a crash. The difference is you don't have a crash report to show why it stopped working. You know what I mean? Like if you just used map or if let everywhere where this, where this URL was and this URL just stopped doing anything. And so anything attached to this URL just stopped doing anything. Mm-hmm. A, a crash is actually more beneficial to you and to not necessarily to the consumer, but it's equally as beneficial as the app just not working. You know what I mean? At least you get a crash report and you get a crash report that says, you know, it got an unexpected nil on this line for this thing. Yeah. But I mean, backing up, that's a, you know, that URL string is hard coded and we know that it's correct. So why would it ever really fail? That seems like a programmer error. It, it, it is. And it, and it shouldn't ever fail. And, and so that's why I think I'm okay with force unwrapping there. And that's uh, also why I think I'm okay with moving from explicit optionals to implicit optionals in the case of IB outlets, because I'd kind of rather have a button tapped and have the app crash so that I, it generates a crash report and I get information rather than it just not do anything. Yep. That makes sense. Right. But we're still just talking about the development process here. Like, you know, that kind of crash is never going to go out to users because in theory, if that's wrong, it's going to crash every time you try to well, do something in development. Yeah. I'm talking about like not hooking stuff up in IB in interface builder. You know what I mean? Like those, those kind of things they can and do and have gone out to mm. users. You know, I think those should just crash. The other side of this is like, how do you communicate that failure state to the user? Right. That was the other side of this question, which is like, you have this idea, these chaining with map and apply and flat map. But if something fails inside that chain, then all of a sudden everything fails and, and you, you're left with a no op. I think the answer to that is not optional. I, I don't think option, that's not what optional is for. There's another type called result that is exactly like optional in theory. So optional is, in, is, is, is an enum. It's really hard to say. Optional is an enum and result is an enum. Optional has some or none with an associated type for some, right? Result has success and failure with associated types for each. So it'll be a result of, it can be a result of any two things. It'll be a result of string or NS error. It'll be a result of string or string. You know what I mean? So you could just pass strings around as the failure case. And that same railroading mechanism that works for optional also works for result where, you know, you're, you're trucking along, you're fine. And then the second one thing fails, you drop down into that failure branch and it just keeps passing along that error state down the line. And so then you end up at the end, you have this thing 
that either has the the result of all the computations that you did or whatever the hell you were doing. It has that or it has the reason that that stuff failed. Mm. So if you're in a – so say there's four steps in this chain and you fail at step two, do you keep proceeding – do you keep passing the result through to catch later errors or do you short circuit immediately with the first error? Let's assume that there's multiple errors. Do you get the last one or the first one? The first one. Okay, so it short circuits. Yes. It's all, all of these things short circuit. They short okay. circuit at the first thing that went wrong. Optional does the same thing. Um, result does the same thing. Uh, anytime something goes wrong in either of these cases, the whole thing just short circuits from there and then just propagates its error case through to the end. So you have, you saw the right type at the end. You have result of whatever you were expecting and whatever error case you were expecting. But that error case might have been from three, four, five steps earlier in the chain. Mm -hmm. Has the other features in Swift 1.2 changed anything else for you about how you think about Swift? Are you already using it anywhere? 1.2, not really. Reason why? Uh, It's still in beta 1 and it's breaking changes. So it's not like something we can just put onto client project. It'll just break client projects. Mm -hmm. Um, Tony updated Argo for 1.2, which it didn't actually, there was only one thing that needed to change. They changed a semantic keyword. So inside protocols, if you wanted to define a class method through a protocol, um, before you used class, but that was confusing because it's like, wait, 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 does this mean that this protocol can only be used on classes now? It's like, no, it just has to, it was just the way that you said that it was a class level method, right? Which is the same thing on an enum or a struct or, you know, I'm just talking about like type dot foo. You know what I mean? That, that level thing. It's on the type itself and not instances of type. Exactly. Yeah. So you had to use class for that. They changed that. So now you use static, which is the struct way of saying it. But also what they did is they added the word static to classes. So now that that static actually means the same thing everywhere. Static on classes means that it's class and final. So it's it's a class level method and it cannot be overridden by subclasses. But you can still use class if you want a class yes. method that can be overridden. Yes. I see. Yes. I see. And so and so it means that that semantic is now standardized because structs can't be subclassed, right? So since structs can't be subclassed, all of their methods are actually static. They're class-level methods that are final. They're class-final methods. You know what I mean? So now you have the same static method inside classes that means the exact same thing. They're class-level methods that are final. But you also have the ability to declare just class methods on classes. So, so protocols can't define... Um, protocols can't actually, this may remove a shitload of code. I think this is going to remove the need for this entire hack I did to deal with some of this stuff around weirdness with subclassing. Anyway, um, uh, so so protocols, protocols have to use static. They can't, they can't say that they can't say that this thing declares a class function or maybe they can, Maybe they can say it declares a class function. I don't know. We changed that from class to static. That it, you have to, we said that the JSON decodable protocol declares static functions, not class functions. And then they fixed some bugs 
that were keeping us from using like flat map in a couple places where we, you know, just the, flat map was causing seg faults in a, in a few places inside Argo. No idea why. If you just, if you just took the code that is flat map and you just did it in line, it worked fine. But something about that operator was breaking everything. And so, mm-hmm. um, we were able to move back to using flat map in those cases. Only other thing is the, the multiple if lets, you know, yeah. did you see that? So you can do like if let foo equals bar, baz equals cucks, cucks. How do you pronounce that? Q-U-X, whatever. <laughs> you can do multiple unwraps on one line. And the cool thing to me is not necessarily the multiple unwraps. That's fine. But it's the conditionals that you can do after. So you can do, you know, you can do multiple unwraps and then say where and then like make and then have an assertion. That says like this integer is also positive. You know, it's greater mm-hmm. than zero. Or this integer is five. And now the inside of that conditional will only be executed if everything unwraps and this conditional is true. Mm-hmm. So you could parse things from like a crappy JSON API that sends empty strings instead of nil. Yes. You could be you know, yeah, where the length of the string is greater than zero. Yeah, except for that it would just it would just fail parsing with right. that. Anyway, the big thing for me is is the new let semantics. Standardizing that was so smart. It's so much nicer. There's there's just there are fewer mental jumps to go through now because you can treat vars and lets exactly the same because var had that same var was able to do that. You could you could declare a var and then set it on the next line. You just couldn't do that with let. mm Hmm. And so just having that all standardized, it just feels so much cleaner and so much nicer now. Yeah, the thing you said earlier about the compiler not being able to infer because of temporal coupling, mm-hmm. you know, whether this thing is hit, that's the same thing that I had. You know, that's the same hoop I had to jump through in my head whenever I wanted to use let. It slowed me down where I had to think about, okay, well, wait, like, where is this thing used? Like, when is this thing initialized? Mm-hmm. Like, can this property be let? Right. And ba- basically, if it wasn't set in the initializer... It still can't. It's still not going to be able to be set outside of the initializer. Class level constants, yes. But, you know, internal to a method. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, inside inside of a, like, yeah, internally in the scope. Right. Now I can just be like, well, this thing's never going to change. It can be a let. But I don't have to worry about the specifics of where I declare it and where it gets set. Yes, yes. Huge. Yeah. Great change. And the addition of set is is huge because it was obviously like oh, the set. one mm-hmm. the one collection that was obviously missing. Like, how do you, you know, yeah, how yeah. do you do anything with the niceness of Swift when you need hash tables? Right. Interesting <laughs> side note about set is the second it came out, I started looking at, well, can I implement map apply flat map pure? Can I bring set? into runes basically so runes is i'll just use the functional programming buzzwords but runes is essentially what runes actually is is runes is implementations of functor applicative and monad for lists for arrays and optionals right it just means that i've defined map apply flat map and pure for those two types so I immediately was like, hey, set is out. That's a built-in library. Uh, that's a, that's in the standard library. Maybe I can just add it 
to runes. That would be kind of nice to just have sets available with these same functions and you could use it the same way. In Has in Haskell set can't be any of them because of some type constraints that we actually don't have because we don't have this higher level type. But what I found out is I can actually make a functor instance. So I can implement map for set and I can implement flat map for set and I can implement pure, but I cannot implement apply. So apply in the context of set would be a set of functions and a set. And it would basically give you the matrix of every function in the set applied to every value in the set of values. So you have a set of functions and a set of values, and you get the matrix of that. So you need the same number of functions as there are items in the set? No, 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 no. It can be one function. It, it applies every function to every value. So if there's only one function in the set, it would just apply that function to every value. If there's two, it would apply the first function to every value and then the second function to every value. This is the same way it works for arrays, right? Okay. You just have an array of functions uh, and an array of values, and then you get a matrix uh, not a matrix, it's a single dimensional thing, but that's the only way my brain can figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. You get every possible value from those functions and those values, right? Right. But because sets need, they have a type constraint that their contents have to be hashable, which makes sense because they need to validate uniqueness. Because of that constraint, I can't make, there's no way to create a set of functions. You can have an array of functions. That's easy. But you cannot have a set of functions because functions are not hashable. They're not able to be uniquely identified. There's no identity mm. for functions. So they're not hashable and they're not equatable. And there's no way to make them hashable or equatable. Right. So you're, so you, so it's, it, but it's a weird step. It's weird that because that's a progressive, it's basically progressive enhancement, right? You have map and apply is just a more powerful version of map. And flat map is a more powerful version of apply. Well, not version of, but they're like, they're like steps up a, a ladder. But set, all of a sudden you just jump the middle rung. You can do the, you can do the weakest version and the strongest version, but you can't do this kind of like middle mm -hmm. version. Does that wild. mean that apply is implemented in terms of map and flat map is implemented in terms of apply? You can. Mm. Cool. Yeah. You can you can you can implement them that way in that direction, pretty easily. You don't always have to, but like I think our implementation of apply for optional is implemented in terms of map, because so um, optional apply for optionals is an optional function and an optional value, right? And if both of those exist, then you get the result. Well. You can just define that as function dot map and then inside that closure value dot map dollar zero. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you would unwrap the function, pass that into a closure, unwrap the optional inside that closure and pass the function to it through map. It's weird. But you can but anyway, you can apply <laughs> you can do it in terms of map. Mm -hmm. Um the only other weird thing is that map, because of the way a set works, where like the way set works for arrays, you're always going to get one value per. Um, you, if if I do map on an array, I'm guaranteed to get an array of the same length back. Mm. 
if I do map on an optional of one type, I'm guaranteed to get that same type back, like some or none. You know what I mean? There's a certain level of identity that goes along with map. So like if I map on some optional, I'm going to get a sum value. If I map on a none optional, I'm going to get a none value. If I map on an array with three elements, I'm going to get an array of three elements. That kind of thing. Set doesn't work like that. If you if you do map on set, there's no way to guarantee that you're going to get a set with the same number of values back because uniqueness. You could have a function. You could pass a function that takes an integer and just returns one. And you could map a set of 100 integers, right, and pass mm-hmm. in this function that just transforms any – it just takes integers and returns the number one. And you get a set with one element, the number one in it. Uh, I get it. So, like you, like if you had a like a set of numbers from one to ten, and then you were mapping over them with some function that actually took odd numbers and made them their even equivalents, yes. then all of a sudden you would end up with only five elements yes. in your resulting set because you've collapsed them down into into even numbers, and now you have two of each even number, which you can't have in a set because right. they're unique. So, so you end up with one. So, so you end up with just two, three, <laughs> two, four, six, eight, and ten. Right. So if you did that with an array, you just get two, two, four, four, six, six, eight, eight, ten, ten. Got it. It just it just came together. Yeah. So I Thanks. don't think I, I don't think I'm going to merge this in because it's like it's not it's not something that I think can be made uh, into a functional kind of thing because mm-hmm. of all these weird edge cases. Anyway. Should wrap it up. We've been talking for a while. This is gonna be a long episode. Tom's gonna yeah. be, Tom's gonna be mad at us. It should require minimal editing. Yeah. Like all of our shows. Show notes for this episode are gonna be found at buildphase.fm slash seventy-three. And as always, we'd like to hear from you, so email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or reach out to us on Twitter at buildphase. And we really appreciate ratings and reviews on the iTunes. Alright, man. Well, I'll talk to you later. Good chat. Thanks.